When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, my name is Stig Abel, the editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Welcome to the brand new Books and Culture podcast from the TLS. Freedom, books, flowers and the moon. That's a strange, oddly ephemeral, naggingly peculiar title for a podcast. I hear you say. Well, it comes from a quote by Oscar Wilde, who said, With freedom, books, flowers and the moon, who could not be happy? Well, who indeed? Well, certainly not my co-host, commissioning editor, pronunciation guru and food snob, Thea Lenadutsi, who happily came up with the title. I did. Although for my were, sins. Although you were misquoting it for a while. I was, I was. Well, only, only slightly. I was just testing. Yeah. But just the, testing. That is the accurate quote. That with is freedom, the books, quote. flowers and the moon. I got the essentials right. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and the reason we've chosen as a title is it, it sort of speaks to things that are beautiful and interesting and varied, which is kind of the purpose of the TLS in the end is to write about that sort of stuff, isn't it? Esoteric things. Esoteric also things. Also solid things like books. So, yeah. And flowers. <laughs> solid but esoteric. We'll, we'll take that. This week we're going to be discussing the seemingly unstoppable rise of Emmanuel Macron, the politician who at last reckoning was the favourite to become the new president of France. He's written a book called... How shall I say revolution in French? Revolution. Revolution. I can't do it. I just think I think if you if you're bilingual, you can do that thing where you pronounce words in foreign languages with the correct accents. But it just sounds silly if I do. I'll try that. Let's see if this sounds silly. He has written a book called Revolution. That sounds ridiculous with me doing that, doesn't it? You say it. It sounds better with you do. Revolution. Yeah, you go. Anyway, and yet, and yet, sorry, context is important because I would never go into a cafe here and ask for a cappuccino I would go it well, I wouldn't ask for a cappuccino anyway but you'd say but, but you'd I say, would cappuccino. say a cappuccino yeah, yeah because you know I mean there's a time and a place okay. I think Révolution will do here okay it's so a book called Révolution <laughs> setting out his manifesto and it's been reviewed uh, by Sudhir Hazara Singh who will be joining us to talk about it we're also going to be talking about the ever political Jonathan Swift the subject of three recent books heralded as a voice of Irish independence he was nothing really of the sort bringing his bitter and angry satire to that issue as to so much else Claude Rawson has written the lead piece on Swift this week in the TLS and will be on the line later Finally, we thought we'd delve into the early modern history of alchemy, which was both a genuine scientific pursuit of sorts and also a handy metaphorical way of looking at a world of changing values. There are not many places you can hear about the history of alchemy, but this podcast is one such place. Esoteric and solid. Esoteric and solid. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) 
First then to modern France, itself a culture, as with so many in the Western world, in a state of flux. Sadir Hazarasingh kicks off his review of Emmanuel Macron's Révolution with this sober prognostication. These are melancholy times for the French political establishment. This is certainly true for the sort of political heavyweights who we may have expected to be fighting it out for the presidency. Alain Juppé, the Republican bruiser, has departed the field. Nicolas Sarkozy, that always unlikely Lazarus, has failed to stage a resurrection. François Fillon remains mired in allegations of corruption that has recently led to him being prosecuted. He inevitably blames the media. And Manuel Valls, the socialist former prime minister, remembered for his controversial, though entirely accurate remark that France will have to live with terrorism, is also no longer a candidate. So who's left to do battle with right-wing populist and supposed beneficiary of the Trump-Farage effect, Marine Le Pen? Well, the answer may be Emmanuel Macron, an unlikely figure in some ways, but one perhaps fitting the spirit of the age. He is both quintessentially French... He has married the schoolteacher with whom he had an affair as a teenager. He's a philosopher who preaches transcendentalism. But he's also an agitator against the political establishments, against the status quo. Sudhir Hazarasingh is an apt guide to the man and his thought and joins Thea and me in the studio now. Sudhir, before we get to Macron, perhaps you might survey for us the current French political field. Is there anybody left other than Macron to face Le Pen? Well, Stig, the only realistic alternative to Macron, who isn't Marine Le Pen, is François Fillon, um, because he is—he he will remain to the candidate of the Republican Party, and they're the only ones who have a chance of winning on the second round. Um, but realistically, he, to an external observer, he's shipped well beneath the waterline, isn't he? I mean, it's been interesting over the last seven, eight days because there was a moment when it felt as though his entire campaign was unravelling. He lost his spokesman, he lost his treasurer, he lost his campaign manager, and it looked over last weekend that he might actually have to to stand down altogether. But he kind of dug in, with the help of Nicolas Sarkozy, who has turned out to be a sort of mafioso figure in the shadows. So he kind of muscled in and brought in all his supporters around Fillon to kind of bolster him up. But he now faces charges, so does that not make it impossible for him to continue, or can he just continue with that sort of shadow hanging over him. He will continue because it, I don't think anything anything further is going to happen uh, in terms of the, the juridical process between now and the election. So he'll be able to continue to campaign. Uh, he'll, he'll continue to say, as he's been saying all along, that there's some kind of dastardly conspiracy against him and that it's not only the fault of the media, but it's the fault of François Hollande and it's the fault of... Uh, uh, I mean, he's trying to find various he other kind of conspirators. Well, he? He, he, yes, and that's the kind of very unfortunate position that he now finds himself in because he's the kind of mainstream candidate of uh, a kind of party of government who's standing on a platform which in this respect, namely the relationship with the judiciary, he's saying something which is no different from what Mein Le Pen is saying. So, Well, tell us about Macron then. Um, I want to hear about him as a writer and philosopher. Is, he a, is it a good book? I mean, is it, is it well, because it, we're so rare that we see a sort of intellectual in modern politics. We were, we were talking about, you know, that Obama kind of is slightly set to, to one side, that there aren't that many literary politicians in Britain anymore. There used to be, and that's slightly gone away. Where, is it a good book? Is it a good, well-written thing? Well, I was very, very pleasantly surprised when I read it because I thought, oh, well, um, 
I should read this because he's he's becoming a kind of important figure in the campaign. But I hadn't really expected it to be as good as it is. And what makes it a very good book is not only that he's telling his own story, but he's putting, placing himself in a kind of historical uh, perspective, which is a kind of French Republican perspective. So he, he presents himself uh, and he presents all his ideas as being part of a long French Republican tradition. And he kind of locates his, his message in that kind of Republican mainstream. So it's very wonderfully written, uh, lots of kind of literary and, and cultural allusions. He's a man of, he's a man of culture, and, and he really is, uh, unlike some of his predecessors who kind of tried to pretend and haven't always pulled it off. We remember when Nicolas Sarkozy confused uh, uh, Roland Barthes and Fabien Barthes, the French uh, football goalkeeper, goalkeeper. Um, or... Uh, there was another meeting where Sarkozy talked about a writer called Stéphane Camus. Um, so things things can go wrong when politicians try to um, do do too much make believe. Something similar happened with Tony Blair when he pretended to be standing at the, at the uh, a part of the Newcastle ground that didn't exist when he was a child. <laughs> yes. I, I seem to remember something similar. Exactly. But Macron really um, knows the stuff, is very comfortable in the world of culture. He gave a wonderful interview in the France Culture programme La Fabrique de l'Histoire uh, three, four days ago, where he talked about his conception of history, uh, the historians that he particularly appreciated. He plays the piano. Um, he's really a man who takes culture very seriously. And does that, does that sort of thing go down well in France with the French electorate? Absolutely. I mean, as opposed to sort of marking him out as being an elitist who benefited from a, you know, a great education. He went to sensational schools and all that, all that sort of thing. It doesn't sort of mark him out as someone that they should be suspicious of who doesn't understand what it's like he's, to struggle. He, he's very aware that there is this gap in France at the moment between the elites and people who feel that they're outside the elites. But where I think um, he's playing it very well is that he's emphasising the importance of culture within the kind of Republican framework. So Republicanism has always been in France about education, about providing opportunity. And so he stresses the importance of education in that kind of Republican context. But the, but the world we live in now, it feels he'll have to do more than that because he'll have to take a, a stance, will he not, on anti-globalisation. He'll have to try to appeal to the 60% of French people who live in small towns and villages who despair of the urban elite, who potentially have strong views about Islam. It's, it's all very well and good him saying, well, I believe in education. Is he going to have to be hardline in some sort of flag-waving respects in order to get a certain degree of popularity? Well, what's been very impressive about him so far is that he has steadfastly refused to do that, to uh, to triangulate on issues like, uh, like Islam, where most politicians feel they have to kind of pander to the kind of extreme view. He says very clearly that he thinks there is a kind of problem with a very small proportion of France's Islamic community, but it's a tiny minority. And the vast majority of France's Islamic community is well integrated in, in French society. And, and he's said that over and over again. So, for example, he doesn't want to take any further the discussions about banning the veil um, in public places. He thinks that's the kind of discussion which polarizes people unnecessarily. Um, it's a brave message. Yeah. Um, Will um, it work against Le Pen? I mean, he's very he's very subtle. So he realizes that there are there are sections of the electorate that he can't reach, uh, and he's not going to try and court them. And what he wants to do is to build a slightly heterogeneous coalition, uh, drawing from the centre 
the centre-right and the centre-left. And it seems, I mean, if opinion polls are anything to go by, it seems as though it's paying off, right? One of the really interesting things that's happening just over the last week or so is how a lot of the heavyweights on the socialist side are coming over towards him. And they should have been supporting Benoit Hamon by that. And they've, they've actually, they've made a point of leaving. I mean, that's the end of Benoit, isn't it? Exactly. He's kind of going down. My guess is Hamon is going to end up with about 10, 11% of the vote. And, and Valls is supporting Macron as well, isn't he? Valls is silently supporting him. But all the, all the popular heavyweights in the socialist government now, for example, there's the defence minister, Jean-Yves Le Drian, who's been working with uh, Macron, but quietly, to prepare his kind of defence programme, which is going to be published this Saturday. But Le Drian hasn't publicly come out in favour of Macron, but it's an open secret. This is all part of the... I mean, in order, you say, to make Macron viable, his his mission viable, there needs to be a huge political realignment of the framework that's around him. I mean, how... How likely is that? That's the kind of $6 million question, yeah. because once he's elected, he'll need a majority, a relatively stable majority in Parliament. Now, Oh, and the, ele- the legislative elections followed only about a month after. A month afterwards. Now, he doesn't have a party, right? Mm. He has this wonderfully named En Marche, yeah. with the exclamation mark, yeah. uh, movement. And, um, a Donald Trump-style exclamation mark. <laughs> exactly. exactly. In capital letters. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say it manages to get 100 seats, right? Let's be generous and give him 100 seats. He'll still need to find, you know, 300 plus uh, members of parliament to support him. And by winning from the centre, he would be in some ways denying a new orthodoxy that has risen up, which is that we're living in polarised times. And I remember when Trump, uh, an advisor to Le Pen, said uh, their world is being destroyed, our world is being built. And, and you could build a narrative which took in Wilders in in Holland, although that may not come to pass, but Trump and Brexit and the four million people who voted UKIP in this country. And you could construct a, a notion that there is the far left, there's the far right, and identity politics is back. That kind of soft Blairite centre, which the old orthodoxy was the way to control politics, was dead, and we're living in new polarised times. A victory for Macron, by the sounds of it, would be a victory for that kind of broad coalition from the centre. From the centre. But Macron's basic view is that the old-fashioned division between left and right no longer tells us very much about political beliefs and political alignments, and that the real division now within the left and within the right are between those who believe in openness on the one hand and those who believe in a more closed society on the other. And you find advocates of both um, on the right and on the left. And what he wants to do is to build a coalition between the kind of open groups on the right and the open groups on mm. the left. So the centrist element of the Rep- of the Républicain and the Valls uh, part Tony Blair of the Socialist like, Party. Yes. Tony Blair would like to do, people like Paddy Ashdown, the former Liberal leader, would like to There's an argument that they, in, in Britain, there's a thing you'd have to create a new party. Yes. I suppose he's done with uh, on Marsh. He's, he's, he's effectively doing that. It feels that would not be possible within parliamentary democracy in Britain. Does it feel like this is a perfect... It's In a year's time, you could come back here and say... He wins the presidential election. He gets enough of this brand new party into the legislative structure to get his 
manifesto achieved. Does that feel like a plausible route? Well, I think we are, we're living in kind of experimental times in politics. You know, who would have thought somebody like Barack Obama would be elected? Who would have thought Donald Trump would be elected? <laughs> Electorates are experimenting, sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes um, in, in kind of interesting ways. And I think what's been happening in France over the past 10, 15 years is that people have tried out the sort of Sarkozy-type new politics and found it to be wanting. They've given the, the kind of traditional left a go with Hollande. So quite a lot of people now in France are thinking, well, let's try him. He couldn't be worse than um, the previous two guys that we've had. Well, well perhaps you know, you'd undertake to come back in a year's time <laughs> and survey what the French political scene looks like with all of this still to come. With great pleasure. Sudhir, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for having me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jonathan Swift will be 350 this year, an anniversary that, if any specious reason is necessary, provides an occasion to examine afresh the man and his work. Three books on Swift also give us an opportunity to do the same. This week, Claude Rawson has imperiously and brilliantly reviewed them in the TLS. Two by Eugene Hammond, to whom Rawson gives rather a hard time, called Jonathan Swift, Irish Blowin' and Jonathan Swift, Ardeen, and one by John Stubbs, entitled Jonathan Swift, The Reluctant Rebel. T.S. Eliot called Swift the greatest writer of English prose and the greatest man who has ever written English prose. And it is perhaps his fate ever to be judged as both a political figure as well as an artist. In Ireland, he's often heralded as an inspiration for independence. Not so, says Rawson, who notes that Swift was not especially pro-Irish, wanting instead the English from Dublin to be rid of the English from London, which is rather different. His angry and sometimes unlikable writing still has the capacity to create dissent and disagreement, which is a testimony to his greatness of sorts. Claude Rawson joins Thea and me now. Claude, I was struck in your in your piece by your story of the Dublin taxi driver convinced 
of Swift's greatness. Yeah. Can you explain his cultural impact in Ireland? Well, I think there's a street assumption that he is important. I think more important than almost any other single writer. They, they regard their writers as national treasures, even their English writers like Yeats. But uh, it's, it's extraordinary. You go to St. Patrick's Cathedral, there's a bust of Swift and there's a bust of his publisher, Faulkner. The tour guide says it's, it's William Faulkner, the novelist, which is kind of completely off the wall. But at the same time, she seems to regard both these figures as iconic and both these figures as belonging to St. Patrick's Cathedral and being Irish. It's a, it's a very strange phenomenon. One of the things that struck me reading the review, Claude, is one of the perils of writing and talking about Swift is the amount of irony involved at all times i think that's true of all a lot of his work but you know perhaps particularly the a modest proposal or, or gulliver's travels yeah. I, i'd kind of interested in your thoughts on how how do you deal with irony swifty and irony when you read him and how do you think these two authors eugene hammond and john stubbs do it? because it's not as straightforward a thing to read very often no. the, the writing of swift i think stubbs is okay stubb doesn't promote theories and Stubb doesn't have personae. He takes the full register of what Swift is saying and then writes rather well about him. Uh, Hammond is, uh, is more tunnel-visioned and more persona-driven. But the thing that nobody ever really quite understands, everybody touches on it, Swift is out to vex the reader. Uh, he is out to disturb and unsettle. And his prose is quarrelsome. There's a little example in Gulliver's Travels where Gulliver is captured by the Lilliputians, and of course he's an enormous size. He's uh, 1,728 times in cubic dimension, the size of a Lilliputian. They're crawling all over his body. He, he needs to go to the loo. There's a major problem. They have to bring carts. They have to carry the offensive matter out of sight. They have to arrange how to deal with this in the future. And it's all a great poker-faced pantomime. And then you're wondering why he's telling you this. And he says, you must be wondering why I'm telling you this. <laughs> But I'm telling you this because my character and point of cleanliness has come into question. Well, nobody's ever questioned his character and point of cleanliness. We don't know who he is. This is chapter two of the whole book. But he's decided to unsettle the reader who's going to say, what? And of course, you're wrong footed. And another, another classic example of that is a modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people from being a burden to their parents or country. Uh, and for making them beneficial to the public, just to give it its its full glorious title there. I mean, that's that's a classic example of the kind of complex and oh, constant yeah. pulling out of the carpets from, from underneath oh, look, us that I just mean, is completely sanitised and, and muted In if you're going for a kind of a persona approach to, to government. Yeah, exactly. And if you're going for a kind of liberal approach, this is a diatribe against colonialism, or this is a Dickensian protest at child labour. I mean, the child labour, the, these little kids, these beggars brats, are pickpockets. Their parents are adulterers, they're depraved, they're papists, they're everything that, that is not good. And, of course, underlying this whole thing, which is often forgotten, the subtext of this whole thing, which would be well recognised by Swift's audience, is that the Irish are supposed to be cannibals in the, in the English way of speaking about them. Part of the sort of common defamatory chatter about the natives who are compared to American Indians. And so what do you expect of cannibals? They're going to eat their children. But of course, the people who eat their children are not, in fact, the Irish natives. The Irish natives collude in this. They're, they're prepared to They stop beating their wives and they're pregnant because there's a profit to be made out of their children. So that's not very flattering to them. But they don't actually do the eating. The people who actually do the eating are the English settler class 
who are failing to look after the economic interests of Ireland in a proper way and can only support it by this extraordinary measure. Do you think there's a problem in the modern world with dealing with SWIFT? Because we, we like to, to be very clear about our writers. We want to either accuse them, as, as, as happens with SWIFT, of misogyny or racism, or we like to say that they're jolly and happy and a, and a beneficial, salutary thing. And is the, the keynote of SWIFT is that he refuses to be easily categorised and contained, and indeed his entire writing career is set against that sort of straightforward response. Exactly. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, he's not racist, and he's not not racist in modern terms. That is to say, the Irish have thick lips and flat noses common to all savage nations. On the other hand, we are their equivalent or worse. And it's the same thing about misogyny. You know, the the women are what people say about women, but then there's always a male counterexample. He sort of sets up this other, this them to be despised and, and sets them up and sets them up and so that then when he reveals that we are in fact them, exactly. we're all the more despicable for exactly. it. Exactly. Well, it's interesting because it's, it's one of the, the very few texts that, you know, they can be read as these incredibly complex works with all of the, you know, the internal yeah. structuring and but it can also be read, you know, albeit in highly abridged and, and um, censored form in, in the nursery. I, I didn't know the modest proposal was read in the nursery. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm yeah. thinking of Gulliver's Travels here. Maybe a fairly unpleasant nursery. With yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point, Claude. Where do you think Swift impinges on most people these days? Is it through this abridgment of Gulliver's Travels? Um, because your taxi driver who loves Swift didn't know he wrote Gulliver's he Travels. Didn't know, and he didn't know what Gulliver's Travels was about. He just knew it was a famous book. And, and if it was by Swift, then he owned it. <laughs> you know, morally. So, so where, where where does he subsist now? Do you think? Do you think he's well, he's not much read? Oh, I think he's read. I think there's a fairly steady sale. You know, the paperbacks of Swift, you know, and the classroom take up of Swift is still fairly considerable. And of course, he's very very big in Ireland. You call Gulliver's Travels very much an Irish book. Uh, it is, and it's in many ways an Irish book, and in many ways an anti-Irish book. But Swift in the nursery is very curious. I remember years ago, I mean, this is in the 19, late 1970s, I did a lecture tour for the British Council in Czechoslovakia, where they had absolutely no books, because you, you, you couldn't buy books in Czechoslovakia. In any case, the students didn't have time to read, because they had 40 hours of indoctrination to endure in the classroom. So they were told about books, and they didn't read them. And I was at a loss to know what to lecture on. And I had my little menu, and one of one of my six lectures was on Swift. And it turned out at the end of the whole lecture tour that the only book that anyone had ever read was Gulliver's Travels. And they'd read it in a Czech or in a Slovak translation, which I then saw in a bookshop. It was only part one and two, big men and little men, leaving out all the hugely disturbing stuff. Well, I mean, you do tend to find, certainly in the children's versions, it's mostly just the Lilliputian section, isn't it? Yeah, it has instant, instant right. recognition. Absolutely. Talk about these books briefly. The, 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 the Hammond book seems to want us to have a Swift who is cheery, yeah. who is a sort of positive force in the modern yeah. world, who we could be friends with. Yes. Why do you think he does that? And, and, well, and, and what do a, you lose by doing that? This is a classroom phenomenon that goes back to the sort of more or less optimistic conformist era of the 1950s. It began then, historically, the realistic view of Swift held sway until after World War II, more or less. And then the sanitizing articles started to come out because everybody wanted their authors to be nice, decent, liberal parsons. 
And Howells has inherited this log, stock, and barrel and done his own thing on it. Instead of the campus parson, he's now got Archbishop Tutu and, and Martin Luther King. It's an absolutely extraordinary phenomenon. It's a sort of knee-jerk return to, to the 60s, including the persona toolkit and all that other stuff. And you see that with a modest proposal where he reads it as a, an ethical... Ethi- admirably uh, ethical. Admirably ethical tract. <laughs> You're fairly unforgiving on, on, on much of how he writes. I, I'm intrigued by the fact that he does this, and, and I wonder whether, actually, more generally, we live in a culture where complexity is very often feared now. I think that's right. And the idea of moral nuance is almost entirely absent and so swift has to either be vile or brilliant and exactly. we'd rather be happy if he was brilliant yeah but he's brilliant on our terms of course incidentally can i just say about the the picture yeah uh, one of my children drew attention to it when i sent him the proof it's based on a complete camera this image of swift talking to vanessa i just to explain it so people listening jonathan swift and vanessa it's, it's, yeah. it's painted by william powell frith in 1881 yeah. it supposedly tells a story of Stella allegedly being married to Swift and receiving a letter from Vanessa saying, hey, what's this between you and Swift? And Stella replies to Vanessa, he's married. Swift is furious that Vanessa wrote to Stella and the the picture shows him bringing the letter to Vanessa. Vanessa looks crestfallen, Swift looks indignant. Nothing to do with the fact that Swift and Stella never married. Vanessa and Stella were kept apart. Vanessa was a wonderfully lively flirty, passionate person, not this rather sort of prim, disconcerted lady. It's a very nice picture. I mean, it's very ornamental. And it's a shame, actually, because I did, I had wanted to ask you about, particularly the John Stubbs account seems to be much more enlightening on his relationships with, Swiss relationships with women. They're both all right in, in the general account of the facts. I mean, they're both fairly steady. But Hammond is a dull, plodding narrative, Stubbs has a lively understanding. But they they both understand that these were intense, complicated friendships with a lot of will-tell, won't-tell, and a lot of, yes, I will, no, I won't. It sounds only Uh, fitting for for the kind of the the conflicted and complex writing that Swift himself did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Claude, thank you so much uh, for for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. I I can't help but be put off by the idea of this well-adjusted and unproblematic Swift. Claude Rawson quotes um, from one of the books, the Hammond book, um, that he's cheerful and easygoing with playfully relaxed heterosexual inclinations. I mean, why would anyone want that rather than a ball of raging and clever contradictions? You're not happy with someone who's just relaxedly heterosexual in your, in your right. Is that what you're saying? Cheerful and easygoing is the bit that yeah. sticks more. It makes you want to read Swift, this, this piece, and it's worth reading the review in the sense that he really does dismantle the the Hammond uh, books. He 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 really sort of in a very fair it seems to me, but in constructive fashion. But he really mm-hmm. does. He wants, I think, Claude Rawson, and you can hear it from his voice talking to him just then. He wants to preserve a sense of the complexity mm. of Swift, because also there's no point in reading a satirist like Swift if you're just going to compartmentalise exactly. in an easy fashion. It kind of exactly. seems to, to, to miss the point entirely. Exactly. You don't read satire to think, oh, that's how I should feel about this thing, right, not sorted, next thing. You read it to, to have the whole thing problematised for you and to, to feel it, to, to, to appreciate the issue in its trixiness and, and complexity. Do you think he was an alchemical figure? <laughs> oh, wow, that's, that's quite a segue. <laughs> The idea of turning one thing into something completely different, horse dung or 
huinum dong into gold say that's 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 every bit as outlandish as something you might find in gulliver's travels and yet our early modern ancestors there were convinced <laughs> that the touch of a stone or the caress of the sun's rays could do that very thing so we may not be able to share a how-to guide for the hard up and i'm sorry about that but we can offer a rich and jewel-studded history of this discipline alchemy discipline if we can call it that Because the problem is, alchemy is both science, complete with designated apparatus, including a special furnace known as an athanor. That's great, though. An athanor. And uh, and fiction, a tricksy language of metaphor, of make-believe. Diane Perkis has, via two new studies of alchemy, one called This Knowledge, Literature, Alchemy and the End of Humanism in Renaissance England, which is very very catchy, um, by Catherine Eggert, and The Alchemist in Literature, From Dante to the Present, by Theodore Zyolkowski, has attempted to get to grips with this thing that, as she puts it, can be vaguely defined as the art of manipulating the hidden or secret powers of nature, a definition so elastic that it covers everything, from simple chemistry experiments to the power to grant eternal life. Diane joins us now. Hi. Hi, it's Thea. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you so much for this. It's a fascinating, it's a really interesting piece. When I first saw this, I thought, oh God, I feel sorry for Diane. She's been given some fairly hard stuff to work with, but you've, you've done it beautifully. It's a, lo- it's a, it's a really interesting uh, essay. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, I just find the whole topic fascinating. In a period where we're so concerned about scams and false information, what could be more thrilling than thinking about the history of that? Mm, exactly. Well, uh, let's, let's, um, let's try to get into that then. Um, although we struggle now to come up with a satisfactory definition of what alchemy is precisely, we do know that alchemy and alchemical thinking were a key part of of early modern life. Where did it come from and what did it do or mean for the early moderns? Uh, Two really important questions there, both quite difficult to answer. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that, Diane. (laughs) um, Where it comes from in terms of the history of world ideas is different from where it came from if you were an early modern people trying to get access to the key information. Early modern people themselves believed it to be an ancient science that they thought was derived from the Greek world, which is where they thought all scientific learning came from. So a lot of its pedigree was important to its widespread acceptance. It was seen as a wonderful survival, a lucky recovery from the detritus of the past. In actual fact, an awful lot of it is quite a lot later than early moderns themselves believed. Um, Indeed, I think it'd be fair to say that most alchemical thinking really comes from the Middle Ages. And sorry, these these people, they did genuinely believe that you could take something and materially change it from one thing into into another via heating and distilling and and, and turn, you know, horse dung into into gold. They did sincerely hope that you could do that. They didn't really, I mean, obviously, there's an intrinsic triumph of hope over experience built into alchemy. But it's not stupid to believe that you can change things by, for example, applying heat to them. I mean, if you take a bowl of cake Mm. mix and pour it into a cake tin, what comes out looks very different in color, texture, smell, taste Mm. to what you put in. So in that way, their thinking was very much part of what we would now identify as chemistry. The trouble was that, if you will, they pushed the underlying principle much too far. 
So I suppose one of the things that made them more optimistic in their experimentation was that for them, the idea of transforming dung into gold was linked to the hope of spiritual redemption mm. and spiritual improvement. They constantly saw themselves rather self-deprecatingly as sinners that required the transforming touch of God to be turned into heavenly beings. And, and that idea of, of a redemption, of a purification, I mean, that's interesting in, insofar as it intersects with, with language. And you say at one point, the search for the philosopher's stone was connected cognitively with the early modern search for a perfect language. The yes. quest for an ancient language cleansed of medieval Catholicism, thus ideally a language the Middle Ages had never known. I mean, this feeds alchemy into a lattice of of often secret interests, especially religious ones. And I mean, I'm wondering if that's if that is why there was a flurry of alchemical texts during the English Civil Wars, for example. That's entirely right. A part of the moment of what we tend to define as the English Renaissance, the period of Shakespeare, is precisely that moment where Protestantism is still very much in thrall to the power, the cultural power of the ancient world, but also anxious about the way that that's been contaminated by Catholicism. So it pretty much takes up alchemy as a metaphor for purging and cleansing valuable material and purifying it and making it great. How does this connect with sort of ideas of impiety, I suppose, Diane? Because at one level, you could get, use alchemy to become closer to God. But at another, it seems to be close to witchcraft, to a sense of... Um, interposing yourself between the, 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 the material world as created by God and trying to change it. So uh, were some people who went down this road taken away from religion and faith and were some people drawn towards it? Yeah, I think the thing is that the thinking remains part of the basic Christian mindset, even if others then perceive your basic Christian mindset as a flawed version of that mindset. And there's a period of sectarian dispute where everybody's trying to be purer and more perfect than everybody else in their religion, and everybody's making that kind of claim. So it's perfectly true that, um, for example, Ben Johnson's wonderful play, The Alchemist, is, among other things, satirizing the way that these obviously greedy and materialistic idiots who are being ripped off by the incredibly smart and vocal eponymous alchemist and his assistant are seeing themselves as morally redeemed and morally perfected and as needing that redemption and perfection. But actually what this ends up amounting to is an encounter with the fairy queen, um, who isn't really the fairy queen even, but is a prostitute. And that, that's sort of playing both with the idea of superstition, popular superstition, and the way that that fuels apparently much more elite discourses. And they're kind of, there's a kind of self-consciousness about uh, these alchemists, these people interested in alchemy. They're, they're aware that the, the ground is shifting beneath them because that's in some ways the point of alchemy. It's that there is no one fixed point. Exactly. Indeed, that's the hope of alchemy. I mean, your, your prayer as an alchemist is to try to empower yourself to understand how things change. And in a period of very dramatic and dynamic change like the Florentine Renaissance or the English Civil War, the need to understand why things happen, why things shift, becomes very urgent politically and socially. So it's not then just a question of making money. It's a question of understanding how the universe works. So while practices like astrology can be, for the most part, 
filed away as kooky old things that nonetheless, you know, they tell us something about the people who, who used to believe in them, or in my Nana's case, still does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to, to do the same with alchemy would be to miss the point entirely. No, there are modern alchemists now. If, if you search the internet, you'll find plenty of websites. There are still believers. So I want to say that to begin with. The second thing is that your Nana probably doesn't believe that the sun's rays falling on the earth transform it into gold and that that's where gold comes from. I don't think she does. I mean, I'd have to check on that one, to be, to be honest. That used to be the premise <laughs> of astrology. Nobody, even the most sort of avid Daily Mail horoscope checker, now believes that gold, silver, tin, copper, lead all come from the rays of planets falling mm. on the earth. But because people used to believe that matter was transformable by beams from planets that you could sort of see, you can see a sunbeam or a moonbeam, then it it was much easier for them to believe that somehow they could replicate that effect in their back rooms. I I think the one thing you've convinced me very much of, Diane, is that it's it's easy to sort of attribute nonsense. But then I try and think about how much I understand about alloys, for example. And it's extraordinarily little. And and so actually, if, if, you know, the notion of applying heat to something and changing it or mixing two different things together to create a compound which changes its its structure, that is all perfectly plausible stuff that I should probably know more about. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were entirely benighted in their views. Exactly. I mean, we're just as unthinking in our acceptance of the Copernican universe as they were in their acceptance of the Ptolemaic universe, which despite the fact that most of the stuff I'm talking about is after Copernicus's discovery, most people are still acting as though he'd never discovered anything. They're still acting as though the planet's rays are falling on the Earth, the Earth's the center of the universe. So in that way, it takes a really, really long time for people's worldview to change. And often worldviews that is sort of nakedly based on what you can see around you, like the idea that the sun makes plants grow, so therefore it must make metal grow, is actually very, very hard to disabuse yourself of. Whereas we have very little straightforward empirical evidence that we can own for um, an understanding of, you know, for example, quantum physics. You can often use the language, the terminology, but, but not really get much beyond that. That's right. And of course, part of what I'm also saying is that alchemists knew this very well. And really, alchemy, among other things, is this lovely language game where you just use these beautiful, glistening words like alembic. And it just sounds really convincing because nobody really knows what you mean. I think we should use alembic more in in daily conversation. Yeah, I think we should. I think it'd be a good name, actually. (laughs) Alembic could be a good name. A good boy's name. We need more good boys. Easily abbreviatable. Yeah, alembic (laughs) able. Thank you for that, Diane. I've got something. I've got something. Thank you so much for for doing this. I think there's a kind of hum. There's actually a very valuable, salutary, humbling point when we look at early modern forms of thinking that it's easy for our our lips to curl into a a, a sneer but actually they're just playing out something that we also do ourselves exactly diane thank you so much uh, for doing the piece and thank you for joining us now oh it's a great pleasure thank you very much bye it's a good lesson on which to end that it is although (laughs) i want to hear about more about your nana's beliefs (laughs) does she she, does she believe in astrology um i don't know she insists on reading me on my um horoscopes my horoscopes I, I mean, but maybe she's very early modern in that she, she's happy to just have it, to let it be and, and to, to be not. Yeah, I, I find horoscopes completely, this is probably a, a, an issue for another podcast, but I, I find that the sort of everyone yeah. within that 12 are going to experience exactly the same yeah. 
day seems fundamentally unlikely. No, but the language of them is so purposefully vague yeah. that you can read into them what you want to, and that's sort of similar to what we've been talking about. Yeah. You're being given something, you're being shown something and not. So you, you, you don't have the, any solid point at which to stand. No, It's I, not true, but it's not not true. Although it is not true. <laughs> Uh, That's all we have time for this week on Remember It, Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon. This newly alchemised podcast (laughs) shall return every week to bring you the best parts of books and ideas from the TLS. You can now follow us excitingly on our very own Twitter feed at FBFM underscore podcast. That's at FBFM underscore podcast. Please give us feedback on the show there or go on to iTunes and review us. The more you review us, the better the podcast shall do and be, I promise. You can buy this week's paper, which as well as everything we've discussed here also brings you a whole chunk of classics, a reasoned description of Jeremy Corbyn, difficult to do and an essay on the ugliness of victorians or go to our website the-tls.co.uk and read us there until next week where we shall be talking isherwood and modernism among much more from thea and from me goodbye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.